Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Rishi Sunak is set to become the leader of Britain's ruling Conservative Party and the country's Prime Minister. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. Sunak is replacing Liz Truss, who resigned after just six tumultuous weeks on the job. Essentially, there's a gigantic hole in the budget caused in considerable part by what Truss did, and it has to be filled somehow. And that everybody's afraid now of where the cuts are going to come. Tom Rackman is a novelist and contributing columnist for The Globe, based in London. <sighs> I have to limit my size on the air. A few sizes is good. That okay. kind of sets the ambiance. All right. I think that, that should help. <laughs> He'll tell us why the political situation in Britain is so unstable and what it all means for how the country moves forward. This is The Decibel. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This week, we learned that Rishi Sunak will be the new prime minister of Britain after both Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt dropped out of of what would have been a race here. Can you just start by telling us, though, who exactly is Rishi Sunak? Well, Rishi Sunak is a 42-year-old fit and dapper and earnest Tory MP. So in many respects, you could think of him sort of as the anti-Boris He's the son of of immigrants of Indian origin. His father was a doctor. His mother was a pharmacist. He was a a gifted schoolboy, and he used to do the accounts for his mother's pharmacy when he was a little boy. And uh, Mm -hmm. he entered politics in 2015 when he won a parliamentary seat in Yorkshire. And he gained notoriety, you could say, as one of the many Tory supporters of Brexit before the 2016 referendum. But he only really leapt into prominence as a junior minister after that, uh, and then took a more senior role in the following government and finally had his key appointment in 2020, when he was named the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the, the ministerial position where you're in charge of the economy in this country. Like our Minister of Finance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really is the the position where he gained public prominence and even gained the nickname of Dishy Rishi, uh, Dish being British slang for very attractive. Uh, so Dishy mm-hmm. Rishi became a, a, a popular <laughs> figure, not least because he was offering the country a 350 billion COVID recovery plan. And so was, was seen as a, a stable hand on the economy at that stage. Although later things got more complicated. Uh, because when Boris Johnson is the prime minister, there is only complicated. And ultimately, Boris Johnson uh, ran into so many scandals and problems and such a pattern of dishonesty that uh, everybody grew fed up with him, including Rishi Sunak, who finally quit his job. And that precipitated the fall of the government in uh, hmm. this summer. Okay. So he had kind of a, a key role this this summer then when, when all of that was going down. Uh, Rishi Sunak is the, the third prime minister in Britain in, over the course of the year. We started with Boris Johnson, then Liz Truss over for a very short stint, and now Rishi Sunak. What's going on here? Why is there such a revolving door of leaders in the UK? Well, I think that the the problem really derives from Brexit because fundamentally Brexit was sold on a great deal of uh, false claims. And the 
the Conservative Party that's been in power ever since that time uh, and before um, has tried to square the circle here. How exactly can it achieve all of the these crazed promises that it gave while the economy is tanking? And it's led to all sorts of fractures. It led to the to the rise of Boris Johnson, who was an inappropriate leader. Then it led to the rise of Truss, and she again was inappropriate. And in both cases, they were they were operating on what's come to be known as cakeism. Cakeism is a an insane philosophy that was proposed by Boris Johnson, and the idea is that you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. It's an idea that came up during the Brexit negotiations with the EU. Uh, where he wouldn't give up anything. He just said he would be able to have absolutely everything and everything would go fine. And of course, none of that was true. And reality interceded. So um, ultimately, Boris Johnson fell as, as a result. And trust was the, you could say, the sort of uh, another quintessential cakeist approach where she was saying, look, we can cut taxes and we can spend vast amounts of money on energy bills. And I'm not actually even going to bother explaining how and there'll be no bad effects. Of course, uh, the markets felt like uh, demonstrating that they did care and you did need to show things and you couldn't just get away with cakeism. So it traces back to, to Brexit. Unfortunately, Brexit is such a toxic issue, such a, a force of division in the country that uh, both of the major parties are afraid to really revisit this in any serious way. Can you remind us, like, what was Brexit supposed to achieve in the first place? Well, the promise was that Britain uh, would regain a sort of magical sovereignty that they wouldn't be responsible or tied to any other place. They could do what they wanted and they could use this new freedom to develop different and beneficial uh, trading relationships with different countries around the world, that they could profit as this kind of buccaneering free nation and that they wouldn't be tied down to foreign bureaucrats who would also allow all sorts of immigrants to come in. Now, I stress that is not my view. That is the claim that, that the Brexiteers were giving. There were different strands behind that, though. There was a xenophobic element. There were people who were pushing for, for Brexit because they were very upset about, about the number of, of foreigners who were coming here, uh, particularly from EU nations. And um, then separately, there were those who had this fantasy of a kind of um, untrammeled free market paradise where uh, there were no regulations and no environmental protections and all these things could be cut and Britain could benefit uh, as a result. Um, so there were there were different, there was also kind of an underlying a lot of it, a kind of nostalgic um, vision of Britain as if it once was this great nation and had been humbled by history and could regain its past again. Hmm. And uh, those different strands have led to different mistakes, but they've all been mistakes. And how exactly did, does it harm the country? What's the economic harm that's, that's happening there? Well, the the economy has shrunk considerably um, compared to what it would have been expected otherwise. The most obvious reason for this is just that Britain has erected uh, trade barriers against its closest trading partners. So whereas the claim was that the value of breaking from Brussels would be that you wouldn't have all of this irritating red tape, actually, the amount of red tape has increased immensely. And you have gigantic queues at the borders and just a, a mass, tons and tons of British exporters don't even bother to try exporting anymore because it's such a nightmare. 
So when they were in the the EU trading bloc, it's a lot easier to then exchange goods, labor as well. And so what you're saying is they've kind of made themselves an island here uh, and and separated themselves from from that easy trade. That's correct. And you additionally have the problem of not having labor uh, force that you need. So, for example, the the health service is suffering tremendously because tens of thousands of jobs that are not filled. It's a, a vast, vast mess. And since 2016, it's been more or less all that the country could discuss and talk about. And so the opportunity cost is immense as well, because it sidelined a country that otherwise could have pursued more serious things and instead has been dealing with a a terrible, terrible tangle. We'll be back after this message. The beginning of the end of, of Liz Truss, who is the shortest serving prime minister in, in, in British history, the beginning of her end seemed to be the release of, of this mini budget uh, that came out uh, on September 23rd. It was criticized for lack of detail and, and especially for cutting taxes on, on the wealthy, which which really uh, shook up shook up markets. It sent markets into a tailspin. Uh, it sunk the British pound. So now that she's stepped down, though, Tom, is is there a new economic plan? Well, oddly enough, there was a new economic plan even when she was still in power, because what happened was that she was she really had power confiscated from her after that disastrous beginning. Um, so the, the the powers that that be in the in the party um, looked at the fact that the the British pound had tanked and that borrowing costs were way up, that mortgages were way up, that, that basically the, the country was in, was in serious threat of, of crashing economically. And so um, bit by bit, she started to cancel some of her plans, including that the unfunded tax cut that you mentioned. But eventually, um, her, she, she sacked her chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and brought in a replacement, Jeremy Hunt, who in effect, then had full power over the economy. And he just, he actually, I think he he said more or less directly that he was reversing absolutely everything that he possibly could of what she had done. And do we know what Hunt is is going to do going forward in terms of the economic plan that he's going to to bring for the country? Well, he's only been in the office for a short period of time. And he'll, of course, have to to come up with an agreed plan with Rishi Sunak, who has been in power for barely even a day. So I think that um, it'll take a little bit of time. On the other hand, there isn't much time because the markets have already reacted very, very badly to what happened before, and they're counting on a more sensible, stable approach. And I think that uh, that the sense is that there will be um, probably higher taxes, uh, at least that's what's suggested from by the Jeremy Hunt plan, there will also probably be cuts to public spending, which is something that, that everybody is afraid to talk about, but seems inevitable. Essentially, there's a gigantic hole in the budget caused in considerable part by what Trust did, and it has to be filled somehow. And that everybody is afraid now of where the cuts are going to come. I also want to ask you about the energy bill crisis. The The annual price to heat homes was set to increase to, to over 3,500 pounds in October. Uh, and Liz Truss put in place something called the Energy Price Guarantee, which would cap energy bills to an average of 2,500 pounds per year for, for the next two years. So, so what's happening to that? 
Well, that was changed as well. So that was that was uh, another immensely expensive move because there are different ways that it could have been done. The, the, the way that the opposition Labour Party had proposed was that they impose a windfall tax so that energy companies making a huge amount of money uh, would have to pay a higher tax on that and that that would help people who were struggling to pay their bills. Uh, but the trust government instead preferred to um, to cover the, the huge uh, cost um, through public spending again. And um, the when Jeremy Hunt took power, he decided that that really wasn't affordable. And so he he ended that program after six months, or at least that is the plan. It's supposed to end in April. At that time, we'll see what state the country's in and see how it goes forward. But I mean, even in the best scenario, the, the price of energy is absolutely soaring here. I mean, it seems like the country is in a little bit of a mess right now, frankly, Tom. Why is the Conservative Party still in power after all this turmoil? Might might a general election be called? Well, the Conservative Party has every reason not to call it. And at the moment, they have all the power not to call it as well. The latest polling shows them behind by about 30 points, which is an unbelievable margin that has rarely been seen. It would mean that that if the election were held and if the results came out um, true to that prediction, then they would be wiped out. It would be like the, the 1993 Canadian elections that wiped out the Progressive Conservative Party in Parliament. It would be uh, a serious, serious, devastating blow to the party. So the last thing they want is that uh, these MPs are themselves afraid of being jobless. They themselves are afraid of paying huge mortgages that have now gone up because of what trust did. So they're desperate not to lose their jobs. And the last thing they want is to risk them. So the election isn't doesn't have to be held until 2024 unless they call it. And most likely the plan in hope is that with Rishi Sunak in charge, they will be able to regain some sort of a, a reputation for a little bit more stability. And some of them will uh, save their jobs, they're hoping. What if this new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, what if it doesn't work out with him? I mean, is there a chance that we could see yet another change of power in the coming months? It seems unlikely that there would be another change of power in the next few months. I can't imagine there could be another government that falls without there being a general election um, because the clamor for one would be just so great. But I think that, again, for that reason, there's a strong incentive to stick with with what uh, Rishi Sunak does, provided he doesn't do anything too insane. And he was really elected as somebody who wouldn't do the insane. You know, he is the is this this sort of anti Boris figure. The idea is that he will be serious and he will attend to uh, to to business in a serious manner, and he will try to rectify this mess that Liz Truss left in her wake. Is there anything that Rishi Sunak, the new new leadership, can actually do to to fix the tailspin that that Britain's economy is currently in? The most likely thing that they will do is try to. Um, placate the markets. And that's puts Britain in an, in an odd and very difficult situation, one that typically is troubles uh, emerging economies where you have problems and the market descends and warns you that you've got to stabilize. But then once you're in their crosshairs, your ability to um, to vary that, vary your policies becomes very limited because anything you do will send the, the cost of borrowing way up, which means that you can't do anything. So you do become somewhat reliant on their 
goodwill. And I think that that is going to limit uh, Rishi Sunak's ability to do um, anything that is too dramatic. He's probably just going to, to be doing things that are, are not necessarily shocking, but are very, very painful for Britain, uh, including cutting services at a point when they can't really manage being cut because there have been years and years of austerity measures that already cut many public services down to the bare bones. So it's going to be a really challenging time ahead for the country, I fear. I mean, it sounds like there's there, there can be some pretty dramatic consequences for all of these things, as, as you say here, Tom. Uh, and, you know, the, the way you're talking about how a lot of this does go back to Brexit, I, I've got to wonder, like, is there is there any chance that Britain might decide to rejoin the EU? Is that, is that a possibility? It's a possibility, but certainly not a possibility for quite a while. I would say that it's it's completely ruled out for the time being. And um, and even if it were to happen, it wouldn't be just like you you left the exit and you go back in and you're 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 granted admission as before. I mean, there are 27 other EU nations that have to agree to this. Britain had very favorable and advantageous terms uh, that it had negotiated for years in its membership, and it won't get all of that back, uh, even if it wanted to. But the, the bigger problem at the outset is um, even getting this issue uh, through the through through in, into kind of mainstream politics. The both political parties have been so fearful of talking about it, so fearful of alienating people, that they they have tended to avoid uh, talking truthfully about the damage that this is doing to the country, and as a result, uh, when you know when politics isn't dealing openly and honestly with the problems that face a country, then it can't possibly hope to resolve those problems. So there's there's quite a way to go, I think, and it requires some political courage to get there. Hmm. And I've got to wonder about, about Scotland and, and Northern Ireland as well. Will, will they stay in the UK given, given everything that's going on? I don't think that there's a likelihood of uh, the, the breakup of Britain immediately. But there are serious strains and pressures and right now, some of which have been caused by Brexit too. A lot of them have been caused by Brexit. Already there was an existing Scottish nationalist um, independence movement that, um, that had had a, a referendum that failed in 2014. But the Scottish nationalists now make the point that, well, that was in a, really in a different country. That was pre-Brexit. And many of them, uh, in fact, the majority of Scotland opposed the idea of leaving the EU. And so it's very upset about it. And that has revitalized the movement. Separately, mm. the problems in Northern Ireland are, are even more frightening, really, because you had this border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland that during uh, membership in the EU was barely noticeable anymore. And uh, it allowed for peace to, uh, to, to, um, to overtake the years and years of violence there. Uh, in part because that you couldn't really tell there was a difference between those sides. So you could get away with it. But now the the most pure and extreme Brexiteers in Parliament and in the, the, in the Tory party are pushing for a, a, a hard border, in effect. And uh, that could set off um, violence. So that's something that is really going to be we're going to be seeing effect of that in the coming days and weeks. Uh, that's that's yeah. a really an imminent problem. Tom, it was great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. 
David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>